0: Let's open our Bibles to Zechariah chapter 5, picking it up in verse 5. Then the angel who talked with me came out, and he said to me, Lift your eyes now and see what is this that goes forth. And so I said, What is it? And he said, It's a basket. If you have the King James, it says ephah, which is a better translation right here, that is going forth. He also said, This is their resemblance throughout the earth. And here is a lead disc lifted up, and thus a woman sitting inside the ephah, or basket. And then he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. And then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings. For they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up their basket between earth and heaven. So I asked the angel who talked with me, "Why, where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me to build a house for it in the land of Shinar, and when it's ready, the basket will be set there on its base. We have been going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, the book of um, Zechariah. And Zechariah, remember, received... Uh, some people argue, either eight or ten uh, visions while he's awake, all in the same night. And this is one of them. And um, the first four chapters, I won't repeat all of them, but basically they've been a fulfillment of, um, some have been fulfilled and some were local. Zechariah's job um, When they were coming back from Babylon, Zechariah is there to encourage these guys because what happened when they were in Babylon, they learned commercialism and they learned it from the Gentiles. They became good businessmen and they acquired an insatiable love for riches, which they saw among the Gentiles in Babylon. And they really didn't have a heart to do manual labor city of Jerusalem was in ruins. They didn't want to work. So Zechariah's job is to encourage them through the um, discouragement and the opposition. On Wednesday night, we talked about Shambalat and Tobiah, um, two guys that did their best to discourage the workers from continuing the work. Um, we have to lay a little bit of a foundation to give explanation to this particular vision called the woman in the ephah. That's what I've titled this this morning. And what we're learning as we're making our way through the, the, the prophets is many times there is a double prophecy. Uh, for example, one of the things that we find here in chapter four is that, um, we have the two olive trees Uh, presented, and then it goes on and talks about Zerubbabel in connection with them. And uh, it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And it talks about this great mountain that Zerubbabel is just going to uh, make it a plain. And it's a picture of opposition that was against uh, uh, Zerubbabel. And yet the two olive branches also have a double meaning, And this isn't a gray area at all. If you go to verses 11 through 14, it talks about the two olive trees and the lampstand, one on each side. And I further answered and said to him, Well, what are these two olive branches dipping their receptacles into two golden pipes from which the golden oil drains? Then he answered and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he said, well, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. This is clearly Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. No question about it. But um, I'm using chapter 4 as an example of a double prophecy because it also uh, re- refers to Joshua, um, the high priest, and... Um, uh, Zerubbabel being used by the Lord. So we have an example of that. Go back to chapter 2, and I'll, I'll show you what I mean about double prophecies. Uh, chapter 2, verses just 10 through 13. Sing and rejoice, O daughters of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people, And I will dwell in your midst. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. So be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. Clearly, this was not being fulfilled in Zechariah's time. This is clearly a prophecy when the Lord himself will dwell with his people during the kingdom age. But again, on the other hand, we have Zechariah's primary purpose is to encourage these discouraged people uh, to get back to the work of the ruins of the city that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the temple, broken down the wall, and they just didn't have a heart. They weren't into it. And yet we find intermixed with that local ministry um, future plans in the kingdom age. Let me give you another example. Um, Chapter 3, verses 8 and 9 deal with a prophecy called the branch. In verse 8, Hear, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are wondrously high. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch." Notice it is all capital letters. Last week I took you to Isaiah and talked about the root of Jesse and the branch that would come forth from it. It was a prophecy. And if it's not clear enough, go to chapter 6 of Zechariah and look at verse 12 where it says, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, again capital letters, from his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory, and he shall sit and rule on his throne, and he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between both of them. This is what we call an Old Testament, uh, a Christophanies, or an Old Testament uh, prophecy concerning Jesus. Only his title here is called the branch. Now I was—I always went over my notes on Sunday morning. I'll be having my coffee and and just go through the, the whole thing. And when I got to reading this part, and I just thought, this is great. The Lord is going to be overseeing the building of the millennial temple. And when He's done, He's going to sit on the throne in it. And I thought, that's great, Lord. You're 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 a builder. And then I almost laughed out loud, and I said, that's got to be the biggest understatement of all time. <laughs> he's the creator of the known universe. And and I'm I'm chuckling. What he did for 30 years, he's a carpenter who worked with his hands. And I thought it was just sort of cool that he was involved with a building project. And I said, <laughs> Dwight, you're talking about the creator of all things. All things were created by him, and all things were created for him. So this is a little, you know, he's going to be overseeing uh, the temple. And this will be the millennial temple, not the tribulation temple. And so with that much of a little bit of a background, all I really wanted you to see as we get into this study of the woman in the basket is that there's a series of visions. And some of them, uh, especially the two olive trees and the kingdom age, And the tribulation are all all mentioned on next this this uh, Wednesday night when we do chapter six verse by verse. It talks about four horses. Well, they happen to be the same color of the horses that we find in Revelation chapter six. So again, what you don't want to miss, and what really builds up a person's faith when we study the scriptures, is how they are um, different. Pictures that the Lord chooses to make the same point. And in, in this case, uh, on Wednesday, we'll be talking about the, the Antichrist and, and the horses there and how they're going to be tied into. But that's not what we're, what we're talking about this morning. This morning, um, we're looking at a very abstract vision. And to untangle the meaning, let's go back to verse 5 and 6, where it said, Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, lift your eyes now and see what is going forth. And so I asked, what is it? And he said, it's an ephah or a basket that is going forth. And he also said, this is their resemblance throughout the earth. Now an ephah or a a basket, an ephah is actually a dry measure that's equal to a little more than a bushel. It was used to measure such commodities as flour and barley. Therefore, this symbolizes trade or commerce. To make this point even further, we read in verse 7 that it has a lead disc lifted up, and there's a woman sitting inside the basket. But it tells us that it's made out of lead. Well, in those days... Um, as you had commerce, you would go to the market and we would use the terminology today, give me a pound of flour. And so the way way they would give you a pound of flour is they had a a balance with a set of weights and you would put your flour on one side and then you'd have a weight that would equal a pound. And what they would do, though, is some that were dishonest, they would cheat and they'd say, well, here's a pound, but it really wasn't a pound. It would be like going to the gas station and the gas is two thirty nine a gallon, but what you don't really know is going so fast that it's really two seventy nine. And we actually have people that from our government that go and actually regulate to make sure that you get what you're paying for. Everybody tracking with me thus far? Let me read a proverb that puts it this way Proverbs eleven verse one. Dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord. But a just weight is his delight. What does that mean? It means being fair in commerce and trade. And when you do business and you charge a certain amount, then you make sure that you're honest in your business dealings. But what God is going to bring all things eventually into judgment, and what we have unfolding here in this, in verse 8, As he talks about this commerce, he says in verse 8, he says, This is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lid over her mouth. And I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women clothed with the wind in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. By the way, a stork, as you studied in Leviticus, if you're Jewish, there were foods that were clean, and then there were foods that were unclean. A stork was an unclean animal. And they lifted up their basket between earth and heaven. And so I said to the angel who talked with me, Well, were they carrying the basket? And uh, he said to me, To build a house for it in the land of Shinar. And when this house is ready, then the basket will be set there on its base. For what purpose? Well, as we sit right now, what we're watching happening, um, one of the next events to take place will be the rapture of the church. And I, I believe that is imminent. It could happen at any time. Personally, I hope it's today. that make me happy just, just fine. Um, and we know that after the rapture, they, we all know people who call themselves Christians And um, yet, when the rapture takes place because they're not born again, they don't have a personal relationship with the Lord, they don't know the Lord, we all know people like that, they will be left behind. But they will wonder what happened because they thought they were Christians, but they're not taken. So what we have in the book of Revelation is... The judgment of Revelation 17, another woman, interesting, that's riding on a beast called the Mother of Harlots. And it's the judgment of the religious institution that God will use the Antichrist right in the middle of the seven year period of time. And the city we know is Rome, because that's the last verse of Revelation chapter 17 the city of seven hills that rule over the kings of the earth. Well, that was written in 96 AD, and in 96 AD, that was Rome. And so we find this religious institution that becomes a one-world religion in chapter 17 of Revelation is going to be judged, and it's going to be completely destroyed in one day. Well, chapter 18 is also going to judge Babylon. And Babylon is going to be judged also in one day. And um, with that being said, let's go to Revelation 18 and let it speak for itself. I explained chapter 17. But what we have is commercialism and wealth and riches and opulence and luxuries that are off the chart And we know that there will be a one-world religion and also a one-world government. But during this period of time, God is going to bring judgment. Chapters 17 and 18 happen before chapter 16 in the book of Revelation. By the time you get to Revelation 16, you have the last judgments, the battle of Armageddon and the hailstones that fall upon the earth. But seventeen and eighteen are going back a little bit and giving us information of certain things that are going to happen during the tribulation period. So in chapter eighteen, um, well I mentioned I mentioned the destruction and I believe it's Rome. Let look look at verse eighteen of chapter seventeen so you can see it for yourself. And the woman uh, that rides the beast. Whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. It has to be Rome. And that's where the one world religion will be located. Now we go into Babylon. And it's called Babylon. Babylon, um, uh, at one time, Saddam Hussein actually started rebuilding Babylon. He didn't get too far. And that, that, that project is pretty much stopped in its tracks. But in the future, there's a city that's called Babylon because it's going to have the same characteristics of the original Babylon. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Now, after these things, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen has become a habitation of demons and prisons of every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mixed for her double. In the measure that she glorified herself with luxurious, lived luxuriously in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. She says in her heart, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and will not see sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day death, and mourning, and famine. And she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. And the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning standing at a distance, interesting, for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city, Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, and every kind of object of the most precious of wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon and incense and frankincense oil, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, and bodies, and notice this one, and the souls of men, and the fruit that their soul longed for has gone from you, And all things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you will find them no more. And the merchants of these things, who became rich by her, will stand at a distance for fear of her torment. I'm thinking radiation here. Weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed with fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls in one hour. Such great riches came to nothing. This is important. Every shipmaster, all who travel by ship, sailors, as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance. And cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? And they threw dust upon their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, The great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth. In one hour, she is made desolate. Reading this tells us that God is going to judge a particular city. Qualifications. It has to be a port city. And as we read Revelation 18, it is really the shipmasters that are the ones that are Grieving the most and the ones who bought and sold from them are mourning because that's all they lived for. It's sort of what's flashing on me right now is when the stock market fell in the 30s. We've all heard stories of brokers jumping out of, you know, the 90th floor of their their buildings because that was all they knew. That was their life. Now, as it pertains to God's people, he says, come out of her, because I'm going to judge her. So basically, what we're having here with this woman, this epha, it's a picture. It's a picture of commerce. It's a picture of buying and selling, but in a negative way, where it's over the top to the point that God is not a part of the picture And let me compare it to the little video we showed about opening the market in Haiti. I mean, those guys are happy, right? Are they doing anything wrong? No, this is a total blessing. And what are they doing? They're buying and they're selling. Is there anything wrong with buying and selling? No. But when it becomes to the point that when Jesus said, how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. There's just certain things that enter in when you go past. um, Well, David put it this way. David said, Lord, never make me so poor that I would have to steal, but never make me so rich that I would forget you. And that's what's happened here. And God's going to bring it into judgment. And it's going to be the focal point of the world commerce. Now, when I say the focal point of the world commerce, we think of the Twin Towers, of course, and um, what happened in 2001. And you say, Dwight, why can't it be Wall Street? I mean, it's a port city. It's uh, probably the biggest one that affects the world's market. Why can't it be um, New York and Wall Street? And the answer to that good question is because it's not on the plains of Shinar. Well, that brings up the question, where are the plains of Shinar? I'm glad you asked that question this morning, because I'm going to put up on the screen exactly where that is. It doesn't have definitive borders, but it is, it is the cradle of civilization. And what you're looking at is Euphrates and the Tigris and uh, parts of modern-day Iraq where Babylon would have been. And I'm going to read um, a little article, a couple paragraphs from a pastor in Iowa named Bill Randall's on the plains of Shinar, because now we can pinpoint somewhere um, where this judgment is going to take place. First Genesis 11, it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain on the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there, and they said to one another, Go, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and slime for the mortar. And they said, Go and let us build a city and a tower, whose top may reach into heaven, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. So what we have here is Babylon. And they built, at that time, the tallest building in the world that reached into heaven. The Lord did not want that to happen. So what did he do? He went down and confounded their language, and they couldn't understand each other. That's where you get babble from. They're babbling. And you have them dispersed, because the Lord didn't want them becoming one. And so he dispersed them. So the first reference to the land of Shinar has to do with babbling. And then... Shinar, interestingly enough, is the ancient name of the land between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. It means to throw down or violence or throwing out. How sadly fitting the oldest civilization in the world whose name literally alludes to violence, such as fallen man. And then this pastor goes on to say, the plain of Shinar is considered even by secular sources to be the cradle of civilization. All false religion sprang out of the worldwide apostasy that occurred there in the days of the Tower of Babel. I'm going to pause and throw something in that um, wasn't in my mind in the first service. Babylon fell. And when the religious rulers the Chaldeans they went from there and they ended up in Pergamus interesting and from Pergamus when you read the book of revelation when it's talking about Pergamus it says where Satan's seat is so there was a time that it moved from Babylon went to Pergamus but from Pergamus when Pergamus fell they went to Rome and they took on the title pontifex maximus and we have a progression from Babylon to Pergamus to now the emperors and the popes taking on this particular title. Another interesting thing is the, the acronym for ISIS. Uh, we're not sure if they're completely defeated, but this is now we're talking present day time. I-S-I-S, is an acronym, is also the ancient name for the Babylonian female deity known as Ishtar. How interesting is that? Her symbol has a crescent moon and a star. All false religion is a variation of mystery Babylon. So we, we find that. And then he goes on to quote what we're studying this morning The prophet Zechariah saw a vision of wickedness being taken in a basket to establish itself in the world, the destination, Shinar. You say, I'm not saying Iraq will change its name, in fact, but Shinar is coming back with a vengeance spiritually. God has a grim prophetic plan for this region. So now it begs the question, um, you know, that Syria is a mess right now. And is there anything in the plane of Shinar, that could actually, we would look at and consider it um, opulent and luxurious. I mean, over-the-top opulent and luxurious. And is there any other possibilities that are in this area? Um, my personal feeling to that question is yes. And before I go any farther, I'm going to qualify myself. I cannot and will not be dogmatic about what I'm about to teach this morning. Are we clear on that one? As a matter of fact, there's a, there's a, the ruler. I'll put his picture up on the screen right now. Did we put the picture of Shinar on the screen? We did good, okay. This The man you're looking at right now is uh, the Saudi Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Um, he is in the process of a project that's called Neom, N-E-O-M. And this plan is to build a city. Um, the first three letters, N-E-O, comes from the Latin word, which means new. Uh, the fourth character, M, is the abbreviation of an Arabic word, which means future, new future. And he's building a city that will have uh, extended into parts of Egypt and Jordan, rendering Neom the first private zone to span three countries. This project will be, will be backed by more than $500 billion over the next several years. So can something just spring up out of nothing? Well, yeah, it's going to. And they, he's going to do it quickly. Could this possibly be Babylon that he's talking about? The answer is no. Why? Because again, Zechariah 5 verse 4 says, And he said to me, Where's this basket going? That's wickedness. That represents commerce. And the answer is to build a house for it in the land of Shinar. Underneath the land of Shinar, we have what they called the Fertile Crescent. And um, that was a trade route in those days. But if you go north, right under that, you have desert. And... Um, we have perimeters, wherever this judgment is going to take place, it has to be in the perimeters of what we would call the land of Shinar. Well, you've probably figured it out by now that I believe the house is there. I believe it's ready. And God is going to judge her after the rapture of the church. And um, he will do so because they have... Cause were called spiritual fornication here in uh, verse three of chapter eighteen, all the nations have drunk and committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth became rich through the abundance of her luxury. what I 'm about to put on the screen um, to to um, state my case here it goes back to when I was oh maybe. 10, 15 years ago, I was coming back from India, and I was at the Delhi airport getting ready to fly back, and I saw all these advertisements for Dubai, and they were looking for laborers to come and work and build in Dubai. And one of the projects that what got me thinking is they wanted to build the tallest building in the world. And I thought, the tallest building in the world? Well, you know where my head went, right back to Babylon to the tallest building in the world so we could make a name for ourselves. And I started thinking about it. And then I started researching it, and I found out other people had actually were thinking the same thing. So I said, I want to play this one safe because I feel like I'm on on a limb here. So I called some of my friends. I called Dave Hunt and T.A. Mcbann and David Hocking, and uh, I bounced it off of them. Um, some... Uh, My friend Dave actually thought Babylon that King Hussein was making could be it or it could possibly be Rome. Uh, David Hawking actually said, Dwight, that's a very interesting thought. I really haven't given it much thought. And then um, what happened is in my own research, one day I was uh, thinking, I really believe that this place is Dubai. What I'm going to put up, first of all, number one on the screen, is at the time a finished building of the tallest building in the world. It exists in Dubai. I think somebody just built one bigger, like about two feet, (laughs) just so they could say they have now the biggest one in the world. But this building exists, and um, it's in Dubai. The second picture I'm going to put up is at the time this picture was taken, it was the only seven star, not a five star. We brag about if you're staying in a five-star hotel. Well, there's seven-star hotels. At this time, it was the only one in the world. And when I checked yesterday, I find I found the top five. The top five seven-star hotels in the world, but number one and number two are both in Dubai. All right. The next picture that I'm going to put up is, um, it has to be a port city and commerce and in and trading. So now here's a picture of the port containers that make their travel. You know, they put them on these great big semis and they, they put them on these large ships and commerce is done. Well, this is one of the busiest ones in the world. And we're talking about in the middle of something that started in 63 from nothing. The next picture is Dubai is the third busiest airport in the world. I was talking to a friend who was looking into it. What it would cost to go first class from New York to Dubai. $30,000. If you want to go first class to Dubai. And so... Here in the middle of nowhere, you have the third busiest airport. There's a lot of airports in the world. JFK, Newark, Chicago, LAX. Then you go to Europe. Number three in the world is Dubai. Okay, next picture we'll put up is um, they created a place to have a name, it says. Here, they created the seven ancient wonders of the world in miniature form. You have the pyramids, you have the Eiffel Tower and including the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. And the the amusement center that goes along with it is 8 times larger than Disneyland in Florida. 8 times larger. Now, the next thing I actually saw on Modern Marvels a documentary, it's called Palm Island. And I, I don't know, anybody else see that documentary besides me? Yeah, several of you have. It's mind-boggling. They built an island in the shape of a palm by dredging the sand and then making it into this island that is surrounded with hotels, luxurious homes, and it really was a, a modern marvel. Before they could actually build anything on it, they're building on sand. So they had to compact it. I remember the program, they were on a tight schedule. They had to cut these two channels in here because the water wasn't flowing and therefore not acceptable because it caused the water to stagnate. So this is just one of their little building projects. Well, if it's going to be a place of commerce, uh, the last picture I'll show you is the world's largest shopping mall. The largest shopping center in the world is in Dubai, and you're looking at it. You can even go downhill skiing in this thing. I'm serious. They got pictures of it making snow, and you can go downhill skiing at this shopping mall. Now, that's my kind of a shopping mall. If It's got a downhill skiing hill in it. When we had the cafe on college avenue i was having lunch at a table and i was sitting next to a couple and i uh, didn't mean to eavesdrop but he used he said he was from dubai and i thought hmm and i leaned over and i said could i talk to you a second and he says sure i said i overheard you say that you grew up in dubai could you describe to me what dubai is like and he says that's easy you take wall street las vegas and hollywood put them all together and you got Dubai, and that was his assessment of the city that he grew up in, and um, that has come to pass in a relatively short period of time, and the magnitude of what was once known only for pearls. And it's interesting when you read um, about the preciousness and their commodities. One of them here is pearls in uh, chapter 18, verse 12. Stones and pearls. And as I thought this through, it's the only place in the world that is on uh, what we would call the plains of Shinar. And um, with that is going to be brought judgment. But why? Let's go back to Exodus chapter 20. And go to the Ten Commandments. There's no place like Dubai in this world. Oh, the other thing that the guy mentioned at the cafe was, you can get anything you want there. And I mean anything. And I played around with this a little bit yesterday, and it says an average day in Dubai. Solid gold toilet seats solid gold cars, and it just went on and on. Pets, um, leopards, lions, tigers, and bears, I mean, for pets. And when he said you can get anything you want, anytime you want, there are 30,000 prostitutes in Dubai. It's supposed to be a criminal offense in the Muslim world, but it's flaunted. Uh, They're the biggest hypocrites in the world as this is the playground of of uh, the Middle East, this is where the rich and the famous go. Donald Trump said when he was a businessman, um, he's talking about Wall Street. He says, "Forget Wall Street, Dubai," and that was that was many many years ago. But I remember him make that statement, and it caught my attention because I was studying it. But um, um, the guy said that the oldest occupation in the world is mainstay. And you can go to the gas station and pick up a girl if you want to. They're that readily available. So if you're in Exodus 20, I'm not going to go through, even though it says thou shalt not commit adultery, I'll come back to that in a bit, thou shalt not steal. But the last commandment is thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet. Your neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his lawnmower, nor his donkey, or anything that's your neighbor's. Well, my neighbor has a really nice John Deere tractor. And isn't as nice as mine. His is better than mine. I want his. That's what covetousness is. Having what you have, that makes it wrong. Because it's not mine. And so covetousness is one of the Ten Commandments. And some of you will say, well, Dwight, you know, that's the law. And we're not under the law. Well, not so fast. The law is absolutely necessary in order to understand salvation. Let me quote Romans 7. This is Paul writing. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. And um, so we need the law because it reveals to us that we're all sinners, every single one of us. Um, Who in here has never told a lie? Go ahead, raise your hand and I'll call you a liar. <laughs> you've broken the law. Which, which, I'll make the guys cringe now. Which man has never looked at a woman and lusted after her? Uh, well, yeah, but I never committed adultery. Hmm, well, Jesus clarified that. He said, If you looked at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Ouch. What have I just done? I've broken the commandments. And it's the commandments that teach us we need the law. It's a mirror that we look into that shows me guilty as charged. Now, there is one person. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, don't think that I have come into the world to break the law. I've not come to break the law. I've come to fulfill it. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means when it said, Thou shalt not lie that Jesus never lied. Thou shalt not commit adultery. When he was tempted, in every area that we were, he fulfilled it. He lived a perfect life, so he could be a perfect sacrifice. He fulfilled the law. But what it brought to us was death. You know, how many sins did it take to bring death? Well, for Adam and Eve, one. The day they ate of what God says don't, that's the day they died. One sin. So if you're not born again and you don't understand what it means to be born again, the first thing that the Holy Spirit does when God sent the Holy Spirit to the world was to convict the world of sin. You're a sinner. And that you have to come to grips With the reality that you need a savior, we don't have that understanding unless we, like Paul said here, I would have not known sin or covetousness unless God's word says that's wrong. You can't do that. Well, um, at men's prayer yesterday, uh, we were in 1 John. And I'm going to have you turn there right now as we talk a little bit about covetousness and why God hates it so much. And why it will be judged. In 1 John 2, chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that's not of the Father, but it's of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. This is telling us that we can put our, our priorities on a business, and it becomes an idol, and it becomes more important than the first commandment, which is to love God first, and whatever our business is second. Good place for an amen. It has to be, but it's tough to do. And the Lord said he's going to finally bring this um, covetousness. He's going to take it and create a place, and there he's going to judge it. That's the very, very center of it. And Revelation 18 is a very descriptive judgment of one day. I think it's nuclear and how it takes place, or the Lord could just do it Sodom and Gomorrah style if he wanted to. But either way, it will be destroyed in one day. That's what Zechariah, chapter 5, the woman of Epha, that's the meaning of that parable. Uh, not parable, but of that teaching. Now, um, turn to Matthew chapter 19, and let's just talk about money for just a little bit. And the love of money. Money, as far as I'm concerned, is amoral. It can be used for good. Or it could be used for evil. But it says, the love of it is the root of all evil. And the very source, which I really um, disappointed that I left out of the first service, and it's just coming to me right now. Um, Even we, will you keep your finger here and go to the book? of Ezekiel chapter 28. Oh, I'm going to kick myself for not mentioning this during the first service. Because um, I want to go to the root of where covetousness comes from. And you need to turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. And I I want to talk about where this all started. Before the garden, go to verse 14 of this chapter. It's referring to Lucifer. But read this. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in all of your ways from the the day you were created until... Iniquity was found in you. Notice what it says next. By the abundance of your trading. Interesting. You became filled with violence within and you sinned. Because of what? By the abundance of the trading. There, his whole purpose as the number one covering angel in heaven somehow was involved with commerce in the busyness of trading that led him to violence and it led him to sin. We always think that pride was a sin of Lucifer. Well, when you have the opulence of a city the of Dubai and you drive around in a gold car, by the way, all the police cars are Ferraris in Dubai, as I was researching it, all of them. That can cause me to covet. (laughs) The cops get Ferraris. And yet, where did it all begin? And why does God hate it? Its origin is Lucifer himself. And um, it's Isaiah that points out the five eyes, it's Ezekiel that points out it somehow had, had something to do with the busyness of life. How many of you are too busy? with your jobs or whatever and it can have an effect on your first love relationship with the Lord. I have to say ouch because I'm guilty of it too. And but at the root of it is that can lead to pride is 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 the trading. I had a friend who's a Calvary Chapel pastor he's out in Montana right now. But I, he was a Wall Street guy. And I said, what's it like being a Wall Street guy? And now he's a Calvary Chapel pastor. He says it consumes you. Totally consumes you. All you think about is money, how to turn it over, and how to make more of it. Ask a very rich man how much more he needs. And know what the answer will be? Just a little bit more. See, it never, never satisfies but what it does is it draws us away and can have the potential to do so, and that's called covetousness, not getting. I want just a little bit more, and it draws our heart and affection. Um, does it make you happy? Well, let's, let's ask the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19, picking it up with verse 16. He says, Now, verse 16, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, What good thing shall I do that I can go to heaven or have eternal life? And the Lord said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that's God. But if you want to enter into life, well, then keep the commandments. Now he's setting them up here. And he said to him, Well, which commandment? And Jesus said, Well, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he stops. Why didn't the Lord talk about covetousness? It's all part of the setup. He wanted the young man to say exactly this. The young man said to him, I've done all these from my youth. And I say to him, liar, liar, pants on fire. (laughs) The Lord could have busted him on any one of those. Instead, he said to the young man, "Um, okay, if, if you want to be my disciple, and follow me, and then go and just sell what you have and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Ouch, I can't do that. And uh, the Bible tells us the young man heard, and it's when he heard that, he was sorrowful. He wasn't happy. He was sad because he couldn't do it. For he had great possessions. But I want to point out here that the Lord didn't say, just wait a minute, you know, we can we can discuss it. We'll find a balancing act here somewhere. No, either the Lord is the Lord of your life or he's not the Lord of your life. Good place for an amen. And this is why Bible studies like this are important because we live in the most wealthiest nation that the world has ever known. We have more than anybody has ever had personally. And unless we're careful, we can lose our first love and we can get caught up into covetousness and not even know it. Then the disciples said to to Jesus, "Um, I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. I say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Is that a figure of speech? Or is the disciple said, well, then who can be saved? That's impossible. You can't put a camel through an eye of a needle unless you grind them up really, really, really small. It's impossible. And then he says, with men, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And so it brings us to what we're going to close with this morning. And that is, this guy left. He wanted to follow the Lord. And Lord said, okay, yeah, just, just like the other disciples. Jesus said, the birds of the air have nests, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. All the disciples left it all, and they followed Jesus right till the day they died. And in closing, I'm going to close with a question, and it deals with the opposite of covetousness. I thought about this. I thought, what is the opposite of covetousness? And the Lord spoke to my heart, and he said, the opposite of covetousness. And here's my question. Are you content? Right now this morning, can you look in your heart and say, I am content. The scriptures, when John the Baptist was preaching, even the Roman soldiers were listening to his preaching, and they were convicted. So they come to John the Baptist, and the soldiers said to him, what about us? We work for Rome. And he said to them, don't intimidate anybody, because you got that sword on your side. And don't accuse anybody falsely, and then he says, "And be content with your wages." Honest question: Are you content with your wages? I'm not asking for hands or anything like that. Next one: Philippians. Paul says, "Not that I res- I speak in regard to need, for I have learned, in whatever state I am in, including Wisconsin, when it's three below zero when you get out of bed, to be content. Are you content?" First Timothy. And having food and clothing with these, be content. Are you content just with because you got food on your plate and you got clothes on your back? Or do you have to have more? The last one, Hebrews 13:5: "Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content, watch things as you have, for He himself has said, "I'm never going to leave you." or forsake you. Now, if you've got the creator of the universe who says, I'm going to be with you all the way. And um, some Christians are wealthy and they can handle it. And some are very, very poor, like our brothers down in Haiti, when it's a big deal to have a chicken and have beans and, and rice. Do you see how happy they were? <laughs> they were happy. That's what he said. i I'm happy. <laughs> And yet, the rich young ruler who had all this money, he hung his head and walked away and he was sad. Christian, are you content? And if you're not, then your heart's in the wrong place and you have an opportunity every single day to say, Lord, you're my joy. And the, the joy of the Lord is my strength. It isn't in any commodity. And it isn't in any other person. You're my contentment. You're my peace. And Lord, I'm content where I'm at. Let's stand and pray. Lord, I pray this morning as we have a very practical Bible study and a very complicated prophecy. We know that someday you're going to judge a city. It may be Dubai. It may be something else. Nonetheless, it originated... And broke the holiness of your universe when one Lucifer was caught up in the busyness of trading that led him to sin. And sin entered your perfect universe because of commerce and trading that led to this pride. Lord, help us guard our hearts and uh, be content and be like David. And we pray the same prayer, Lord. Never make us so poor that we would ever steal. Are so rich that you would never stop being our first love and our contentment. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.